0: Coming up on this week's show, a new Amiga system is coming next year. Doom turns 30 and John Romero is making a new episode. And we get the history of horror games with
1: Dan Richardson.
2: And the Retro Hour podcast is, of course, brought to you every Friday with our wonderful friends at Bitmap Books. Now, of course, today on the show, we're going to be talking about horror video games. And if you love horror games, have you seen From Ants to Zombies, six decades of video game horror? the latest release from Bitmap Books. Now, from the 70s to the current day, from the ZX Spectrum to the Xbox Series X, it covers more than 130 horror games in over 600 beautifully illustrated pages. If you love the genre, you need to check this out. You can see it right now and order your copy at bitmapbooks.com. And with our lovely friends at PCBWay. Now, of course, you know about PCBWay. They offer fully featured custom PCB prototyping with low-cost, fast turnaround quality boards. And they offer services like 3D printing and injection molding. And you know they're massive supporters of the retro community. So if you're working on a project right now, get an instant quote at PCBWay.com. Hello and welcome to the Retro Hour podcast, episode number 403, your weekly dose of retro gaming and technology news with me, Dan Wood. Me, Ravi
0: Abbott. And me, Joe Fox. And
2: very nice of be joining us for the podcast that every single Friday takes you on a nostalgic trip back, discusses classic video games, classic systems, explores the companies behind them, and of course brings you up to speed on what's been happening in the exciting world of retro from over the last seven days. And I've got to say, um, obviously we just celebrated our 400th episode a couple of weeks ago. We're kind of in a bit of a celebratory mood as well this week because uh, it is finally out
1: there the book oh you you were so scared about clicking that button and sending it out but uh it's been great to hear that people have kind of got a copy and uh, we've sent it out in the digital form in pdfs yeah. and you know when you back a book it's always kind of better getting the hardback book so we're getting a lot of people who are just skimming through it lightly at the moment and i could totally understand that cuz i can't wait to actually hold it in my hands but it is at the printers at the moment so uh, that time will be soon
2: Yeah, now, for people that maybe haven't been long-term listeners, because it was about about a year ago now, actually, pretty much, wasn't it, when we first set up the Kickstarter for the book? Um, Feels longer ago than a year, weirdly. It's been a long old year, this. Uh, But... It's been yeah, pretty much a year of solid work on this book, you know, featuring some of our favourite interviews. I'd say you know, there's a good, probably 30% of the book's completely fresh stuff in there as well that no one's ever seen before. Loads of features in there. We've actually got four exclusive interviews. We only promised three of them originally, but I think it's just kind of all these projects, it's just as we've done it, has grown and grown and grown. I think the book's like, what, three, uh, 439 pages?
0: Yeah, 400. It's definitely more than 400 pages. And yeah. uh, I'd like to think it's more than 30%. That's doing there. There's, yeah. there's quite a lot in there, and on the pictures as well as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and uh, like like Bravi says, people are kind of flicking through it, waiting for the physical book, which should you know should be with us soon. Uh, just seeing a picture of that and be able to hold it in the next couple of weeks, hopefully, yeah. would be absolutely amazing. But. Um, yeah, a lot of people, you know, really, really praising the uh, the layout of it and stuff like that, and just kind of like the quality of it, which isn't which isn't necessarily down to us. That's down to our fantastic producer Simon, who has worked with us tired, tirelessly. He's done, job, he has done an amazing job. He's done an amazing job. So much, mate. Yeah, yeah, and, and you know, we're not exactly the easiest people to work with sometimes. So. Yeah, I know what you mean. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, it's been it's been an experience this last year, but yeah, c- celebrations all around for the last like three or four weeks now. It's been amazing. Yeah, because you sent the uh, PDFs, the eBooks out on uh, Sunday, wasn't it? And then uh, yeah
2: went into the living room after I'd done it, my wife goes, you're an author now. I'm like, wow, yeah, never thought of that. We've got a book out there. It's got like a, an, an ISBN number and everything. <laughs> um, but if you did back it, thank you so much and you know, hopefully you've enjoyed the rewards that we sent out and, uh, you know, I've had a look at the e-book and I know a lot of people, like you said, Ravi, are waiting for the actual hard book before they delve into it properly, but early feedback has been incredible. I don't think I've seen a single bad comment, fingers crossed, so far. So uh, You're you asking for it and, now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, bringing it, bringing it on now. Uh, but, I mean, there have been people that have only joined the podcast in the last year. I've actually a few messages of people going, can I get hold of a copy of the book? I missed out on the Kickstarter. Um, We are going to have some left after all the backers have been fulfilled. So obviously I want to make sure that everyone's got their book who backed the Kickstarter first. And then, uh, you know, our patrons are going to get first dibs, I think, on the remaining stock that we've got, and then we'll open it up to everyone else. But also going to be selling the eBooks as well, aren't we, at some point? So uh, there'll definitely be a way for everyone to get a look at the book very soon. So again, thank you for your support and I hope you enjoyed it. Now, even though it was Halloween last week... Joe's still feeling in the spooky mood. You've been playing many horror horror games over the last
0: I'm always in the spooky mood, I am. Um, oh, God, what horror games? You know what? I've been playing the Wii with my daughter this week. I've been playing Cooking Mama, so that's pretty spooky, I guess, because yeah, yeah. uh, it's ter- terribly hard. Um, but no, uh, not, not really, actually. Uh, Cooking Mama. Actually, you know what? I've been playing The Mummy uh, Demastered. Uh, by Way Forward, which is a really good game if you haven't checked out. It's a Metroidvania mm. game, which is really, really fun. Uh, but the reason we are talking still about the spooky season two weeks on is this week's guest is actually a, a guy called Dan Richardson, and he is the developer producer behind Terabytes, which we actually spoke about in the news section a couple of weeks ago, which yeah. is a new upcoming docu series. Uh, by the same guys who did like the Last Action Hero and uh, oh, what's it called, In Search of Darkness. The FPS one, didn't the well? FPS one, which we covered not yeah. too long ago. All fantastic documentaries that have all come out over the last couple of years, and they're doing another one called Terabytes, which is the evolution in history of I was going to say of zombie games, but of horror games, uh, including zombie games, including zombie games. <laughs> There's a couple of standout zombie games in the history of horror games. And uh, yeah, right up my street, just, you know, if, if you're into horror games and, you know, Resident Evil, Silent Hill and some, you know, Japanese untouched kind of, you know, unheard of games and stuff like that. Yeah, just the next kind of hour or so, just talking about that kind of stuff, deep dive into the history of it and the evolution of it. Yeah, absolutely. Just Mind mind blowing for me. Uh, maybe some people find ravi. I know you're not big into your spooky no, games. But I, I, I no, love it. it. Not necessarily
1: spooky. I, I'm into um, I'm into you know games that make you jump, and I think yeah. video games hit you differently um, yeah. than watching films and stuff. And it's it's kind of unique horror in the uh, genre, the way that it's created with video games. So yeah, yeah I, I think it's really interesting. Though it's a good subject to be talking about.
2: Yeah, and I think, you know, we we did cover this very briefly at the end of, I think it was the week before last, wasn't it, on the yeah. podcast. And then after we finished recording, Joe's like, wow, this looks really good. And I'm like, well, why don't we reach out and get them on? yeah. yeah. Like, Dan was well up for coming on, so uh, we're going to have a full-on celebration of the history of horror games with our this week's special guest, Dan Richardson. He'll be on the show in around 35 minutes from now. But of course, there is lots of new stories to get through. The first half of the podcast is when we bring you up to speed on what's been happening in the world of retro from over the last week. And uh, so many people have tagged us in this on the socials and put it in our Discord as well. And everyone's very excited about this. The fact that we are getting a full-size new Amiga system in the headlines i've seen everywhere they're calling it a console
1: so we'll talk about that in a moment but this one has got a full working keyboard yeah to be honest i'm not really that excited about this news because you know we knew it was kind of coming um when we had the Interview on the podcast uh, with Retro Games Limited. They did mention that they would uh, be going for that. Um, do you want to go back and hear a bit of that? Because
2: this is Chris Smith from Retro Games Limited that we had on the podcast when the uh, the A five hundred Mini launched, and we did ask him that question whether they were going to do a, you know full size Amiga, and also kind of what it was going to be like. So let's have a quick listen to the uh, that bit with Chris. Well, another question that I'm seeing everywhere, and you know a lot of people have been asking me this after my video, um, is you obviously did the Maxi version of the 64 with the working keyboard. Any plans to do a, a Maxi A500 with a, a workable keyboard at some stage?
0: Yeah, um, it won't be an A500 um, because that would be uh, a, a beast on the desk, really. So we'll probably uh, choose a, a slimmer or a, a different form factor for it. It's harder to judge what the market would be for it. So as long as we can make it financially viable, as long as we, you know, we're not making a loss on it and there's enough to keep the company running for towards the next product um it's something we'll definitely look at doing
2: yes i mean there's been a lot of speculation as to whether or not they do it like you said ravi we did actually get the word from them um last summer that this was always kind of the plan for it
1: yeah and you know i think it's 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 really cool but at the moment it's just speculation and like as they release teasers and stuff it's just going to go on and people are going to be like has it got a floppy drive has it got this what is yeah. it you know uh i think the more interesting thing is the uh project line that they've kind of released which uh says you know they're launching another new mini console like mm. i really wonder what that is they're also launching this uh full-size amiga as well but they're also launching another full-size console And another full-size console as well. So you've essentially got three new ones coming that, you know, we've not heard anything about. And I'm just thinking, I wonder what they are and which companies they've done a deal with. Because, you know, you mentioned console here. They're they're kind of using the term console uh, for the Amiga, which, you know, I call a computer. But um, Mm. maybe these other ones are. I don't know, we're speculating with some people on Discord and saying maybe it could be, you know, Atari, ST, Jaguar or Lynx or something. I'm, I'm not quite sure who they're going to deal with, you know. Just to kind of set up
2: what this is, I mean, this is Retro Games Limited, who were the company that brought the, the A500 Mini out last year, which was a a mini consoleized version of the Amiga that had, you know, a nice launcher screen in there, a load of built-in games. Previously, before that, they did the C64 and the VIC-20 Mini as well, didn't they? And also a full-size version of the Commodore 64 Maxi as well. And like you said, this week they've released their product roadmap, which is basically a look at what they're going to be doing until the end of 2025. So it's kind of their product lineup for the next, like, you know, 18 months or so. So what, what did you think of this joke? Because I know you've, you've played with my A500 Mini.
0: Yeah, I think this is cool. You know, obviously for, you know, the Amiga fans and the classic kind of computer fans. I think uh, just kind of reflecting on what Ravi said there about how they're calling it a full-size Amiga console launch and a full-size console launch, etc., mini console launch i think that's for marketing purposes more than anything because you i think it alienates it if they put it as a like a mini computer or a amiga computer launch because of the likes of myself uh maybe you know some people who weren't necessarily into the amigas and the commodores and stuff back in the day i think by calling it a computer uh, by calling it a a console they feel it's more accessible now does that make sense but also they're mm. using the word amiga now yeah when before true. it was Where, the a500 a mini. yeah and i yeah. know they had
1: licensing from cloanto but <laughs> new maybe. full
0: size a console launched <laughs> yeah yeah so, so
1: <laughs> i'd think they would put a 500 minute uh a 500 full size rather than mm. full size amiga so um they might have yeah. all the branding on it and stuff That's interesting. Yeah.
2: Which, I mean, you mentioned their kind of, you know, what their products will be going forward, whether they're going to be doing like, you know, Atari STs or whatever. It's interesting that
1: all of their releases so far have been Commodore machines, haven't they? Yeah, that's what I mean. And I I think it it shows that they're kind of into that area of like computers and the kind of retro scene, you know. And I'm just thinking, you know, being embraced in the UK as well, are they kind of going for this... uh, uh, this vibe could it could could they be a BBC Micro? Could there be, uh, you know, a Vectrex or something that we've um, not seen in a in a mini form before? Yeah, I was thinking if they stick with the
2: Commodore <laughs> kind of products, there's not really many more to do. I can't imagine them doing a you know Commodore PET mini or maxi or a Plus Four. I can't imagine that'd sell very well. Um, yeah, it's going to be interesting seeing you know going forward what they do. I think you might be right. Maybe the Atari ST would be a good contender because it does seem like a system that you know doesn't really get much in in the way of you know, kind of you know, new products being released. Yeah, or rate.
1: even so, like, like a, a little Lynx. Um, yeah. Or just a full-size Lynx would still be little, of course, wouldn't it? Like a mini Lynx would be uh, <laughs> tiny.
2: So I will be interesting to see going forward what they do. In terms of this full-size Amiga then, it's interesting that, you know, again, a lot of people have been saying, is it going to be basically a big Amiga 500? We heard from Chris there a year ago that that wasn't their plan because, you know, he did talk this kind of off-air afterwards as well um, about the fact that, you know, there's so much plastic involved in making a clone of the Amiga yeah, they're, they're 500. Yeah, they're giant, actually. Yeah. A five hundred, you look at them. And you think about the size of the circuit board in there, it's like it's pretty much a bit bigger than a Raspberry Pi. So it'd be rattling around the case, wouldn't it, if it was to be a full-size Amiga 500. But then I'm thinking, what else could it be, though? I mean, it could be something completely new. Some people have said they're going to make CD32s, like replicas. I, to,
1: which, to be honest, I've heard like lots of people say CD32s, and I don't think it, it garners the kind of you know public attention as much as the a500 that the a500 was a lot more well known and yeah. even stuff like the a600 people just don't associate it you know uh, with amiga you know in the mainstream the a500 was like the biggest selling one so i think it, it's probably going to be that but in a reduced form um yeah yeah just that was my thinking too that maybe it'll be
2: like a Size of an Amiga 600, but with that kind of a more of a form factor of the A500, so it looks more like a you know basically a bigger version of the the A500. Yeah, mini, some within, kind of somewhere you know, in between, working. you know. Yeah, yeah. Which I think is cool. I mean, it's uh, again. I mean, like you said, Joe, they the tend to aim these more at the console market. It's really for games players, mm-hmm. isn't it? But yeah. I mean, I've been playing with my A500 Mini recently, and kind of the modern community have really taken that to the next level. Now, I mean, we talked about those you know those kind of workbench packs. So you can run, you know, the Amiga OS on there and load up Deluxe Paint and stuff like that as well. Um, recently, people have even got Wi-Fi working on it so you can connect it to the internet and web browse on it using Amiga web browsers and download stuff from Amunet and FTP servers and stuff as well. I so
1: wonder... Really, I mean... Yeah. You know, when are we going to run out of mini consoles to create? That's, that's the question <laughs> well, about that. Is, you know. We know
0: we're scraping the barrel, as you said, when the CD32 mini comes out. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they might just go, all oh, that might be a CDTV mini. Oh. Who
2: knows, yeah, yeah. For Dan to buy. About 400 (laughs) people,
0: We sold two.
2: (laughs) So, uh, I mean, it is very exciting to see see that they are doing that, I think, you know. Of course, I mean, not for us guys like me and you, Ravi, who've got, you know, a load of original Amiga machines as well. But I think actually being able to walk in and get, you know, a new Amiga with a working keyboard that actually is functional as one you know, in, in 2024, 2025 is going to be exciting, I think. So uh, if you want to check out their roadmap and uh, speculate as to what else they're going to be doing, because like you said, there is quite a lot of product announcements uh, they're going to be doing over the next 18 months or so. So you can check out the uh, the roadmap right now. And uh, what we know so far, we'll stick that in our show notes this week as well. Now, something else is celebrating a big anniversary. It feels like everything that we, we played growing up as kids is like, you know, suddenly turning 25 or 30 recently. Uh, but Doom is going to be celebrating its 30th birthday next month on December the 10th. You know, I used to remember at school, you know, cause I had an Amiga then, you know, 1993, um, before I got my A1200, I think, actually. And I remember a kid in the library kind of going, he had like the shareware demo of Doom. And I remember him being really excited about it and telling me about it. And I, I thought he was on about the game Dune. <laughs> At first, he comes out. Have you played Dune? Have you played? D-? I'm like, D- yeah, yeah, I played that years ago. Obviously, he was talking about this incredible new FPS game, and I've uh, told this story before. How <laughs> I first got my eyes in it when I, when I went into Rhyme and the Stationers, which seemed to be the place to go for you know upcoming hot games when I was a kid. But um that game is celebrating its 30th birthday, and if you're talking about you know games that really defined a genre, you know Doom is up there, isn't it? And, yeah some of the biggest video games of all time and a series that continues to this day and of course uh, a few years ago um, we did get John Romero doing a a pack called Sigil which was basically some new episodes for the original Doom that he released for the 25th anniversary but now is going to be doing a follow up Sigil 2 to celebrate Doom's 30th
0: yeah i mean i'm i love doom but i'm not into the whole kind of like i play doom on like my Xbox one, you know, we like probably a little bit of a heathen there. Um, I've got a
2: feeling, didn't Bethesda actually put the, the sigil pack out for the Xbox, didn't they?
0: I think they did actually, um, because I do feel like there was five episodes on there and I did play through them all, Mm. but I couldn't tell you what they all are kind of thing. Um, But yeah, this is coming out on the 30th anniversary, which is going to be December 10th. um, And it is going to be free uh, to download. And it comes with nine levels along with two deathmatch only levels as well which is quite interesting. Um he did do a that you can pay for it, you know, a digital edition. Mm. And then you could also do a physical edition where it just I say just comes on a USB stick. It comes on a nifty little shotgun shell. Uh <laughs> the, the physical edition on a USB stick so it's a little shotgun shell. But uh that instantly sold out like as soon as it was announced. All right. <laughs> the physical edition gone straight away, uh, which I am not surprised of it being doomed with it being so huge. Uh but 30 man like that's yeah. I mean I'm starting to feel when we first started this, like I was in my mid twenties now, I'm in my mid thirties, yeah. and I'm like, oh god, <laughs> these games are 10 and 30 and stuff, and I'm I'm feeling old, but well he's, he's it has hairs are going gray and the knees are hurting. Yeah, yeah,
1: absolutely. <laughs> he's gonna do a live Twitch chat with John Carmack yeah. as well. Oh um, awesome. which is gonna be on the day of release as well, which yeah. um you know 10th of December, and I think that will probably break Twitch. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> probably. <laughs> And that's moderated by our,
2: our good buddy, David El Craddock. He's going to be hosting that on Twitch. So, yeah, I think that's awesome. I mean, the fact that John Romero, I, I remember, you know, like you said about the fact how long we've done this podcast now, I remember us talking about the first Sigil pack. Probably feels like about a year or And, and he's years, a great
1: he? level designer as well. That's yeah, well, I mean, why, Romero, why these, <laughs> uh, you know, why these episodes are so fantastic and having having the add-ons on Doom, you know.
0: mm
2: Yeah. So the fact that, you know, we're now getting the, uh, you know, unofficial Doom sixth episode. um, I love the fact that he gives them away for free as well. Yeah. It just proves it the love he's still got for Doom all these years on. And seeing, you know, John Romero going back to making levels for the original Doom. And it works on, obviously, Ultimate Doom as well. And yeah, I mean, that's going to be a must download when that comes out. So not long to wait, just over a month uh, coming out on December the 10th. So if you want to check that out, I'll put that in our show notes as well. Now, we have got um, (laughs) something very cool to talk about in a moment. The world's first dog speedrunner in a video game in just a minute. And an incredible new cassette emulator that works on lots of retro machines. So we'll talk about all that in just a sec. Before we do, let's just take a quick second to give a big thank you to our this week's sponsor. It is, of course, one of our longest running sponsors, our incredible friends at ExpressVPN. Now, we know at the moment the economy is, you know, really difficult. I renewed my mortgage the other day, and that's going to buy about... 300 pounds a month. You guys know I've been crying over that since the weekend as well. And are we thinking of all the streaming services as well? I mean, my missus signs up to all. We've obviously got Netflix, she in her primes on there as well, Disney Plus. Got some weird stuff I've never heard of. Stars Play. What the hell is Stars? Oh my, play? God. my missus signs up. I've, I've, I've so cut, that, cut down on my <laughs> subscriptions. Yeah. Yeah, well, that's the thing. I mean, they're just getting so expensive now as well. And the thing is, the price of them keeps going up all the time too. Now, one good thing about ExpressVPN is you can cut back and save a lot of money as well. Because did you know that actually services like Netflix have got thousands more shows than you think? But the reason is that they're only licensed to play them in certain countries. So, for example, if you open Netflix on your TV... In the UK, it's going to be completely different from what someone in Italy or Japan or America sees. But using ExpressVPN, you can change your online location. And ExpressVPN's got over 90 countries to choose from. So when you run out of stuff to watch, you know, rather than having a thousand different services that you pay for, you just have one and switch to another country and unlock thousands of new shows as well. Now, for example, you've been... Uh, we've been watching on the American Netflix recently, Ravi. It seems like you're always on
1: that. Yeah, I've, I've been watching The Matrix, but also, uh, you know, for Guy Fox Night, I watched V for Vendetta, which is an absolutely fantastic one and uh, not available on the UK Netflix. So, you know, it's a great service, ExpressVPN, and it's incredibly fast. I leave it on sometimes, and I don't realise... Yeah. Yeah, and you you don't get any buffering, anything like that, really, really quick. And uh, on
2: top of that, you can even use ExpressVPN to get discounts as well. Like, did you know that, for example, if you uh, buy Netflix from Argentina... It costs a fraction of the price. That's a little tip there as well. Now, it works out less than $7 a month as well. ExpressVPN completely pays for itself and a lot more as well. So a no-brainer. If you want to give it a try, get access to a load more shows. And, of course, use our exclusive link. So where we get the credit. the note that we sent you. Head to expressvpn.com retro, and you get three extra months on a one-year plan. So we'll sort you up with three months for free. Expressvpn.com retro. And a big thank you to our mates at ExpressVPN for their continued support. Do you guys ever watch uh, speedruns on Twitch or YouTube? Another very big genre these days.
0: Yeah, I I watch quite a lot of speedruns on horror games, Resident Evil, stuff like that. And I think I'm quite fast at these games and I watch these speedruns and I feel quite pathetic. But not not as pathetic as I feel after watching this one.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Well, this is the world's first dog who's going to become a speedrunner. An event that's coming up next year called AGDQ. 2024 now um this is uh, an event that's held in uh, pittsburgh and uh, they stream this as well and basically it's uh, it's called games done quick mm. awesome games done quick it stands for and basically, they basically they do this event and stream them as well to raise money for charity but this year for the very first time a competitor called uh, peanut butter is going to be taking part and he's a dog he's the doge
0: dog well he's not the doge dog but it looks very similar yeah but uh, yeah he's a uh, is it a shibu is it called Uh, Shiba? Yeah, Shimbu Inu, I I can't remember. Um, Yeah, he's pretty good at uh, Gyromite for the original Mm. NES. Um, And it's interesting how they set it up. Uh, He's got a custom controller to open the... So with with the original Gyromite, which I think you played with Rob the Robot, didn't you? In two-player mode, yeah. Yeah, yeah, in two-player mode. um, You essentially pressed the buttons to open uh, gates and pipes, like red or blue ones. And I'm I'm assuming he's following his owner's commands. Yeah, so to, the owner's kind to, yeah. of tempting him with the hands. So he's yeah. It's actually the owner speed running, and the well, dog's just
1: go, pressing I've, it.
2: Have a listen to it. Here, here he is. Here he is. Good boy. Are you
3: ready? Are you ready? Watch me. Button.
1: Wait. Oh no! Sit. Here you go, buddy. Yeah, let's try that again. This time for sure. Button. Sit. Whatever. That's
2: good enough. All right. Good boy. See, <laughs> so yeah, there's a 25 minute video of him training it that you can watch on YouTube.
1: Yeah, I think, um, you know, maybe a, a dog that's had more practice would be better. Mm. Or a cat. <laughs> you know, you see those videos of cats ringing those bells uh, for a
0: snack. That, that was going <laughs> to be, be my question. Do you guys, you know, see your cat or your dog? doing this you mean you could train train Winston if there's the if there's band?
1: food they'd do anything you know food involved at the end or a
2: reward yeah um i, I do love my dog he, he's not the smartest dog i've ever owned he's in the room so i've got to be quiet um i don't think <laughs> I, I don't fancy his chances of something like cuphead or battle toads if, I'm if
1: it was sniffing like you know there's dogs that sniff out bombs and stuff like that they're really yeah, they're really good at that and if you had that as a kind of control device <laughs> yeah so,
2: I mean, I do think it is awesome. I mean, like you said, it's really the owner kind of instructing him when to put his paw down on this pedal, really, isn't it? But I think in terms of novelty, you know, the fact that this is the first canine speedrunner in the world yeah. that we know of, um, and the fact this is for a charity stream as well, I think, you know, it is a, it's a bit of a yeah, deal, is Yeah, it's good it? for so, a headline. Yeah, absolutely. So if you want to check out that little training video, it's very cute to watch. I'll uh, put that in our show notes as well. Now, I must admit, I don't really use cassette tapes much anymore, even on my uh, my retro systems that are of that era, you know, I'm thinking of like my, my Commodore 64 and my Commodore Plus 4. I generally use an SD2 I see SD reader on those. And you guys know that my uh, my Spectrum Next should be arriving any day now as well. I have actually got some more Spectrum games on cassette tape from the uh, the 10 minutes that I owned a Spectrum back in the 90s. I've told you guys about this before when I uh, accidentally plugged in my, my Canon printer power supply into it and blew it up so that was my 10 minute i've been waiting 30 years now to play these spectrum games looking forward to my next arriving as well uh but for those of us who may be i mean there's an article here on time extension that i put in our show notes as well they kind of say that cassette tapes are coming towards the end of their lifespan now which i don't know i'm a little bit doubtful about that because i've still got audio cassettes that work fine
1: if anything i think they're probably more reliable than floppy disks yeah i've still got loads of blanks at home and they're fine and uh, you know I, i still see them on sale in the shops Um, Yeah. You know, some of the hipster kind of record shops have a few, few cassettes in the corner. Yeah. Yeah. They seem to be really coming
2: back. I mean, I was in a, a charity shop over the weekend. And it seems quite a few charity shops now as well have like, you know, audio books on cassette tape and albums definitely seems to be a medium that's, you know, had a comeback in recent years. But obviously, if you own a lot of kind of, you know, old school games for your Amstrad or your Spectrum, you might not want to get the original tapes out the box too often, because they are becoming rare now. And obviously, we all know that cassette tapes have a problem in insofar as they can get chewed up by the mechanism. And if your favourite game from back in the day got chewed up, I imagine you wouldn't be all that happy. But there is now a great little solution that doesn't actually require any, you know, additional hardware for your machine itself, called the tzx cassette and this is a universal cassette emulator that works on the for example the commodore 64 the spectrum and at the bbc micro they've tested it with as well but it could work on even more machines potentially
1: what do you guys it's um it's that technology that basically when you had a rubbish car stereo and you put a cassette in that had a jack lead coming from it and then you connected your mini disc or cd player to it and suddenly you know you could uh play tunes on the old radio. Uh, it's kind of using that so it connects with the tape heads. Um, yeah. This is obviously a solution for people that want to use like the original cassette player on a device like rather than something like an SD uh, plug-in or, you know, yeah. a, a kind of replacement that does it. So it's it's very niche, but I think it's got a lot more applications as well. I guess you could put music on this, maybe if they had a wireless trip in there you know stream music to it it could develop as something that you could <laughs> you know put in old cars and then straight away yeah. bluetooth connect to it and uh go for it i like the idea that it's got a battery in there it's got a little oled display as well and uh buttons to select the tracks um yeah it's just a really cool little concept and uh i'm surprised nobody's actually done it before and i'd love to see how this develops i think it's got a lot more legs than just in the kind of retro gaming world but uh you know, it does feel that solution for people that want to use that that cassette drive. Like, you know, I can imagine something like the Amstrad that had the built-in uh, cassette drive and the later models. Um mm. that, that could be really useful. Or like, um, oh, there was some Commodore Pets that actually had cassette drives yeah, as yeah, well.
2: Yeah, they did, yeah. Yeah, and I think, you know, I do like this solution. There have been similar things in the past. You can actually buy from, like, Argos and things, but it's nowhere near as advanced as this. I mean, I got one that's basically, it's a, it looks like a, the shell of a cassette, but it's got, like, an SD card slot on the top. So you put an SD card in there, and you can basically load on um, WAV files, WAV files, you know, audio files onto it, or MP3s. Yeah. I tried it on my Commodore Plus 4 and 64, didn't read them at all, couldn't get it working. So that wasn't a solution for games, as far as I could see, but it would work with, you know, putting MP3s onto an old cassette player in your car for example but this one yeah i mean it's much more fully featured than that this actually is based on an arduino um and it's by uh someone on x or twitter called that real jam hamster and it is quite advanced i mean you've got an sd card reader in there as well like you said there's a an led screen on there too so obviously you can see kind of what game is selected from the sd card you've got the arduino controlling everything and usb even... charger
1: as well it seems to have and yeah, a
2: battery Yeah, there's a built-in battery that looks like, you know, kind of a a generic iPod-style battery, um, which, yeah, like you said, you can charge from USB. You've got some LEDs in here as well. Um, The example he's made is quite a cool-looking turquoise green cassette shell, which I think gives it a nice look. And he's even got stuff like um, motor pause detection working on it as well, because, you know, some systems kind of, particularly I remember on the Commodore 64, you may have multi-load games where they kind of load a level into RAM. I think I remember uh, International Karate doing this, and when you got to the next level, the game would basically load the next level from the cassette tape. So, you know, for stuff like that, it means the system can automatically kind of pause the tape without you having to manually do it. Um, which is is very cool, and he's actually made a bunch of these as well. So basically, he's using the uh, kind of rejected tapes, you know, the shells of old cassette tapes, to build these in as well. No word on whether he's going to be like releasing these commercially or anything at the moment, but I think it does look like a product that if he releases plans for it, then people could get these working themselves. And I know, like you said, there is there is SD card readers and all that, but actually, one thing I really like about using kind of tape images on old eight bit machines is you get the full experience. For example, you know, some Spectrum games give you like a loading screen when it was loading from the tape that would, you know, procedurally draw on the screen. Generally, if you're loading them from like disc images, you don't get all of that. And even stuff like Cracktros and all that as well. Um, And even hearing the sound of the game loading on a Spectrum, you know, authentically like you did the original uh, tapes, I think is very cool. So I think for those that kind of want that as close as possible to the original cassette tape experience, then this is going to be a really good solution, isn't it? So um Yeah, not much more to say in this, really, but I think there's definitely a market for it, too. So, yeah, like you said, Robbie, I mean, it could be something that's even bigger, like the audio crowd as well.
1: Yeah, yeah, I think think it's got a lot of legs, and obviously they've thought about it well. And, uh, you know, if if you can save a cassette that uh, has been ruined otherwise and actually play the title or, you know, preserve one, then this is great. I've been walking around with my cassette Walkman over the last couple of weeks. What, are those little foam earphones? These no, 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 no. I,
2: pl- I plug some iPhone, uh, yeah. yeah, iPod ones into it, I think they are, actually. Uh, but the reason I've been doing it is because, of course, we did uh, recently do our own audio cassette, didn't we?
1: Yeah, I thought you were, like, making a mixtape for your wife or something. I, I really want to now. I just <laughs> thought really you were a, a hipster. Tape, probably <laughs> of the wife, yeah.
2: Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I've been walking around, though, because I thought, well, we got a. because for those who didn't know, we actually did a special episode of the podcast for our Kickstarter backers on the book, didn't we? Yeah. On the top tier. And uh, <laughs> when we first did it, we thought, oh, we might get, like, you know, maybe five, six people back there. And I'll, I'll just buy a tape-to-tape copy and we'll do it. I think we had about 175 or something, didn't we? Yeah. Quite a lot. Yeah, it was quite a few. So <laughs> we had to actually find a cassette duplicator in 2023, which luckily they do still exist. So, yeah, I've been walking around. Obviously, I had to kind of check it, make sure that it played properly, um, fished out my old uh, cassette player, uh, my old, uh, is it Sony Walkman from like 2000? Um, so I've been walking around the village kind of in Costa and that with my... Uh, like <laughs> my cassette player, listening to our book. Well, well that's so, well, the actual,
1: that's like. the killer product I've, I've just thought of now. So you get Spotify, you connect it up with a Bluetooth uh, wireless chip <laughs> and then you make custom playlists uh, for girls and yeah, yeah. <laughs> or boys, <laughs> you love us. And then you go, I've made you a mixtape and you hand it 80 style, but you're streaming them and you can change your, and then adverts pop up halfway through and you go, oh, he's too cheap to get premium.
2: Obviously, it relies on our having a cassette tape player as well, Ravi. But, um, you know, I like your plan. Yeah. So uh, if you want to check that out so far, it is a you know, work in progress. Looks like he's finally finished it for himself. Hopefully, there'll be a way for uh, other people to get their hands on these. I'll put that video by yet. at Real Jam Hamster in the show notes this week as well. Now, it seems like only the other week we were talking about something similar to this. It's because we were. We were talking about Mortal Kombat 2 getting ported to the 3DO last month, if you guys remember. Um, not to be outdone by the 3DO, the Atari Jaguar is now getting what looks to be a pretty arcade perfect of the original first Mortal Kombat game.
0: You know what? I always have to kind of go back and check. Like, you know, whenever I see anything about Mortal Kombat getting ported to the JAG, or, you know, when we were talking about Mortal Kombat being on the 3DO and stuff the other week, I always go and check, and I'm like, was it not on the JAG? Because Mortal Kombat was on everything. Like hmm. it was I think it was promised initially, but it never came out. Yeah, but it never actually came out, did it? But yeah, it, it seems like an obvious console for it to be on. Um because you got that if people bought it. Yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it's just like the Jaguar seemed perfect for it, you know. What was that? Mm. What was is it Kasumi Ninja by Naughty Tommy yeah. Right. yeah. Um yeah. which was a rip-off of uh Mortal Kombat on the Jag. But yeah, it just always surprises me not that it wasn't on there. But yeah, this does look really nice. This is um they started making this in February this year um, yeah. and uh, they've been working on this for some time using a development kit called JAG Studio, I believe it Which is. Which I'll talk more about in a minute because that's very impressive. Yeah, yeah, to get this running. But it does look really impressive. And uh, the video uh, is about 25 minutes long, but there's a lot of focus in there about kind of like frame rates and frames of animations on the... Because uh, you don't really think about this, but it's like, the frames of animation on the character sprites, like just when they're standing there, you think Mortal Kombat, they kind of like, you know, they kind of jig side to side, don't they? Like ready to fight. And it's like so many of the console ports and stuff, you lose frames of that animation when they're ported from the arcade to the consoles. Whereas this JAG version, you know, they're trying to keep it all kind of like arcade perfect or, you know, as perfect as possible. And, you know, it does, it looks, it, it does look really good. Um, it's quite funny. I've got, I've got it, the video, you know, paused right now on the character select screen. And because of the, the hyper detail of it, because it does look more detailed, you can actually see the, uh, the, the goofy face expressions on some of the characters. <laughs> <laughs> um, on the select screen. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, but yeah, no, it looks really impressive.
2: Yeah. Now this is a guy called a true fun games. And he's put, um, there's a couple of videos on his YouTube channel. Like you said, originally he started this beginning of the year. It was a bit of a proof of concept really, And then a lot of people kind of, that looks really, you know, should do that. So he said, well, why not? So now he's actually Mm -hmm. making, uh, using the arcade assets as well. um, Basically, what it looks like it's going to be a proper, true arcade version of Mortal Kombat for the Atari Jaguar. Now, at the moment, he's got the title screen that he's changed a little bit. Uh, from the arcade one, you've got the character select screen as well, um, which again looks pretty much identical to the arcade. The only difference is, you know, you get the characters like left and right who you you pick your fighter. Yeah. On the, the arcade's got more resolution, so they're a bit further down the screen, but he's moved them up and actually kind of overlap the characters with the the, the tiles behind it with the other character select things, which I think actually looks really good. It's a nice little effect that he's put on there. And then you get into the game itself, and yeah, I mean, this has got it all. Even stuff like, you know, there's a little kind of flame in the first level that kind of flickers, you know, in the arcade version. I remember like the Mega Drive version didn't have that in, um, or the Amiga one, it was just static. It didn't move. Mm. And it's actually got like, there's like three layer parallax like, scrolling in here as well.
0: Yeah. With the clouds. Yeah, the level of detail. Yeah. The clouds and everything in the background. It It is the frame rate that's doing it for me. Like you forget yeah. how detailed these games were, you know, because I'm in my mind's eye, I'm so used to playing it on like the Mega Drive, uh, yeah. or on the Super Nintendo. And when, when you look, you know when you look back and actually kind of like look at the arcade comparison you know in this video you forget how much detail was actually in this game um, Yeah, you know and it, it, it's crazy like you say the flame the parallax clo- scrolling behind the uh, the big Japanese Padoga building and stuff like that like it does look amazing and it, it <laughs> I know the Jags have failed console but it's like oh look at what you could have had
2: <laughs> yeah 100% it proves it kind of if people used it you know the hardware properly mm. then you know there were some really impressive things that were capable on it I mean it's less colours in the arcade I think the arcade version it said it had 64 yeah, colours it's got 16. And dance, yeah and he's down yeah mm. but I mean it doesn't look like it he's no. done a really good job of kind of uh, you know remapping the colour palettes of them. And yeah, he's used this uh, environment called Jag Studio, which I had heard the name before, but then I did a bit of digging kind of to find out a bit more about what it is. Um, Because there was a basically a, a development suite for the Jaguar called Raptor API a few years ago, which was actually the package that he started developing this in, but you've got to use assembly code for that, and he said he's not really an assembly programmer. Right. So that was slowing him down. And his day job is that he programs in C. So using Jag Studio, that's actually a really advanced development suite for the Jaguar, and you can use Assembler Basic or C, and then really what it will do is it, it's got hardware abstraction layers in there as well, plug-in modules. So really it means that it, you can take advantage of the Jaguar's chipset without having to do your own routines and you know figure it all out yourself. So it really does mean that, you know, in just a few weeks, people are making really impressive games you know using this would it took months back in the
1: day. What do you think is revy? yeah i think it's i think it's good um some of the home ports uh were yeah kind of lacking um yeah uh yeah I'm impressed and uh you're right with the jag system it needs more more kind of development and more time putting into it and I found that was a problem with a lot of the uh the systems back then, you know, they they failed and people didn't put that time and effort into porting stuff. They were quick ports and uh, they didn't take advantage of the hardware. So it's always nice to see, you know, a, a title living up to the actual hardware that it's on. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned Joe, you were shocked that Mortal Kombat didn't
2: come out in the Jaguar. Even Rise of the Robots didn't come out in the Atari Jaguar. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah, so <laughs> Poor Jack. You can get much love. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's swerved a bullet there. Uh, but this uh, home homebrew version of Mortal Kombat looks really good. So hopefully, it won't be too long until we get to play that. And I'm sure he'll put it up for free, you know, because obviously, I, would, I wouldn't imagine you'd want to sell this and get in trouble. Uh, but hopefully, it will be something you can download and play on your X. Uh, obviously, the Atari flash carts are out there now for, you know, the Jaguar. You can play it on those, hopefully. So it uh, looks very good. Keep up the good work. And if if you want to check out that work in progress and, of course, the rest of the stories, you don't have to Google around, to save you the job. Just head to our website, theretrohour.com, or check out the show notes in your podcast app. Right, in just a moment, we're going to get the history of horror games with this week's very special guest, Dan Richardson. Before we do that, let's take a quick second to give a big thank you to another one of our sponsors this week, and it is our wonderful mates at Notion. Now, you've heard us talking about Notion before, the fact that, you know, we have this struggle, Joe, don't we, in our jobs, all these different services that we have to open, Teams, Trello, Discord. And many you have to open when you go into work every day?
0: I can't go into them in too much detail <laughs> due to my job, but it's at least about 15, and then I wow. have about at least four or five One Notes open as well at work and it is it's just absolutely crazy and it's like i've got three screens open whereas at home you know where i'm on my home computer and everything i am allowed to use notion it's very similar to one note but you can have so much more in there and i'm a simple term, and you can make it as simple as you want or as complex as you want can't you yeah, and that's the thing. I mean, you need to tell your boss to get
2: on this because um, not only has it got all that you know time saving features and you know less alerts and all the things that annoy us, notifications going off on all these different services. But one incredible thing about Notion is something called Notion Q and A. Now, obviously, at the moment, the the biggest thing in the world is artificial intelligence, and they've implemented this so well. I mean, like you said, it combines your notes, your docs, all your projects together in one very simple to use workspace. And uh, they've got a new feature in there called Q and A, which is basically an AI assistant. They can answer questions about, for example, your next quarter's roadmap. Maybe you've got a marketing campaign proposal you're looking for. Maybe you want to find out, you know, a long lost link that you know is in one of your documents somewhere on your shared drive or one of your colleagues has sent you in a message maybe six months ago. You ask it to find it for you. It'll do it in seconds. It is that easy. <laughs> so that urgent piece of information that previously you have to spend probably hours looking for, it'll find it really quickly. And most importantly, keep your 70 intact as well. So all you do is ask, ask Q&A to find it for you. And obviously, when your projects are getting more complex as well, and you want to find stuff across your entire company, this is where it comes in. It can make use of your entire database of knowledge to make sure that the answers are actually really helpful as well. So uh, it could be like, you know, your wiki, your project, your, your docs, your meeting notes as well. And normally, you might turn to a coworker to ask it something like, you know, when did you send me that message? Have you got a link to this? Ask your Q&A. It'll search through thousands of documents in just seconds, thousands of messages as well well. Answer it in a clear language, no matter how large or complex your workspace is as well. So you can find exactly what you need without having to leave your dock and go hunting through thousands of files. And you can trust that your data is secure because Notion AI is designed to protect your information. No AI models are trained with your information. It's all encrypted and answers will never use information from pages that you haven't got access to as well. So it really means you can get on with your work and it will save you so much time. So why don't you give this a try? Honestly, doesn't it sound like a game changer? Have a look. Notion AI. Try it for free by Going to Notion.com slash Retro Hour, all lowercase Notion.com slash Retro Hour, to try the powerful, easy to use Notion AI today. And of course, use our link, support the podcast, Notion.com slash Retro Hour. And a massive thank you to our friends at Notion for their support of our show. Right then, next, let's get into the history of horror video games with our special guest, Dan Richardson. He's next on the Retro Hour podcast. You're listening to the Retro Hour podcast and it's time to welcome on this week's very special guest and I can already hear Joe completely getting into his element here. We're going to be talking about horror video games and uh, you might have heard us talking about this incredible new documentary um, a couple of weeks ago on the podcast, which is called Terabytes, the Evolution of Horror Gaming. That's part of the In Search of Darkness series. Now, obviously, you know that Creative VC, you've probably heard us talking about them before, also did that incredible first person shooter documentary, Last Action Heroes and uh, In Search of Darkness were which started as a journey into iconic 80s horror movie, now going into games as well, you know, that really, really do these nostalgic documentaries so well. And we thought we'd welcome on the producer on now uh, this new Terabytes movie, Dan Richardson. How you doing, Dan? I am
3: doing fantastic and very glad to be here. Hello, everybody.
2: Well, nice to have you on, mate. And uh, I know Halloween was a couple of weeks ago, but I think we can keep the the spooky vibe going a, <laughs> a little bit longer because this uh, this new Terabytes documentary just looks incredible. I mean, you know, so we can kind of get to know you a little bit, Dan. I mean, kind of, you know, what's your background with gaming? Where did your journey with video games begin?
3: Oh, I mean, I've been playing games since probably I was too young to talk. Um, there is literally a, a home video of me playing Alex Kidd in the Miracle World on the Master System at my nana's house. The filming is, and it's like, oh, look, the baby's playing the games, and, you know, they're kind of joking along, and then my older brother goes like, no, hang on, look, he's doing it, and I'm very slowly making my way through the first level. Um, My background professionally is more being in filmmaking, um, Mm -hmm. but my passion has always, always been video games. You know, I am somebody who proudly wears a massive Legend of Zelda tattoo on their back uh, and undertale tattoos on my arm and little references here and there, literally all over my skin. So, yeah, I've just always, always, always deeply, deeply into games. And in a way that sort of doesn't necessarily give away my age as well. Uh, Mm. Growing up, I was always a couple of generations behind whatever was new Mm. at the time. So as a result, um, I've kind of got a lot of fond memories of the NES and the Super Nintendo, despite being sort of born well into the Super Nintendo's life cycle. But yeah, it's, it's, it's been a huge, huge passion for us and biggest passion at the moment for me and something that's cultivated over years within games is obviously horror games. And so it's really thrilling to be kind of making a documentary and really spotlighting that subgenre of a
0: medium that I love so much. So, yeah, tell us about, so you mentioned there you're kind of like your nine to five is in filmmaking and uh, you work for Creator VC, yeah. who is behind Terabytes. Kind of tell us about what you do there and what your job is there. And uh, then we'll get into the nitty gritty of the uh, the horror games.
3: Yeah, so uh, Creator VC, if you don't know, it, are this um, independent uh, studio um, created by Robin Block we've basically cultivated this uh, niche in that we do these really grand scale retrospective documentaries on specific niches within pop culture. Um, But we don't just do them where we'll sort of point at things and say like, hey, remember this? We actively involve the people who have created those materials on a huge scale that like, I don't want to, own horn own horn here, but I think that nobody else is really doing at the minute. So what we'll kind of do is, you know, um, to give you an example of what other game and documentary with FPS stock, we went through this big, long journey. It's a five hour long documentary, you know, huge scale stuff, going from the very, very, very early days of the first person shooter all the way up to the present day. And along the way, you know, we're interviewing all of these key figures like Warren Spector and having him talk about System Shop and John Romero and John mm-hmm. Carmack and having mm-hmm. them talk about Doom. And we're just building this, you know, <laughs> huge portrait rate of such a, like, important subsection of the medium. And where I sort of came into with terabytes is... Um, I had uh, a couple of independent films, fiction films, that were doing fairly well in like, film festivals and stuff. Mm. Um, and on a personal YouTube account, I actually just as a sort of fun side hobby thing, I do a lot of horror analysis. I've just come off the back of a massive uh, 31-day video essay marathon I always do for October for Halloween, where I do a specific video essay on a specific film each and every day of the month. Oh, wow. Well dressed called? as a skeleton, Dan Drambles. Dan Drambles. Um, Okay, I'll, I'll link that up in the show notes. And I, I do it all. I do it all. Well dressed as a skeleton. <laughs> nice. <laughs> and I did that. Uh, I did that for charity this year, and that was good. that was the the finishing one. So I met Robin, who runs Creator VC. sort of through both of these ventures. Actually, kind of, we got in contact about some other project that, unfortunately, I can't talk about. Um, but while we were having these conversations, you know, we kind of looked at. Uh, my filmmaking passed and, you know, he kinda of come across my YouTube, that kind of came up and he looked horror analysis and stuff, and he was like, Oh wow, he's like really got a knack for this. And so as our relationship developed, what that ended up essentially becoming right now is is terabytes. Um and that's that's kind of how this this whole whole journey started.
2: Well, talking about your personal history with Horror games. I mean, I, I've still got vivid memories of you know playing games like you know Alone in the Dark when I was a kid, and just you know, Joe's a massive fan of the Resident Evil series. I don't think an episode of this podcast goes by that Joe hasn't mentioned Resident <laughs> Evil. Every episode, every day years. goes
0: by. It's <laughs> so, <in> my life.
2: <laughs> what about you, Dan? I mean, what's kind of the first horror game you kind of really fell in love with?
3: Oh, I mean, probably, I know it's the the generic answer, especially since we've just named it, but probably Resident Evil as well. Mm. My relationship with horror in general has always been one of almost the taboo. Like Mm. I very much wasn't allowed to play this stuff when I was younger, but that made it all the more enticing and all the more interesting. Um, I've got this very vivid memory of being on a holiday and my mom bought me like a gaming magazine to read for, the long car ride i think it was like a playstation magazine or something and one of the featured reviews on in that magazine was non nightmare creatures i don't know if you guys remember that game ps1 and it vaguely it didn't even have screenshots of the violence it vaguely alluded to a violent scene that occurred in the game while i was sort of reviewing it and my mom read that section and confiscated the magazine offers so that'll kind of tell you how sort of protected I was around (laughs) horror. It wasn't even that I wasn't allowed to play the games. It was, I wasn't allowed to read reviews in a small section of a magazine on horror games that the rest of the magazine was covering, you know, platformers and shooters and what have you. So there there was this kind of thing with me where horror always sort of was this forbidden fruit. And I guess that's kind Mm -hmm. of why I've been drawn to it a lot um, in sort of films as well, you know, my. My general genre within which I work um, it tends to be horror, and yeah, I've got I've got so many early memories of of essentially playing things I shouldn't, mm. um, and that really enhances the atmosphere and yeah. scares of a game. Uh, I very 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 vividly remember when I was younger, we had just gotten a second tv in the living room for christmas and it was this small little crt because what was becoming a consistent problem for us is we only had the one tv and i was i would just play games religiously like you know from the very start of my day till night like i I was not a an extroverted social kid i was very much a stay inside and play games from dusk till dawn Mm-hmm. And as a result, you know, when my mom wanted to watch EastEnders, it was like, right, you get, you have to come off your games. And at that point, I just didn't know what to do with myself. So I just, paced and twiddled me thumbs and <laughs> be extremely bored. But when we got this, we got this miracle, you know, CRT and we tucked it away in the corner. So I had my own little corner to play games while she watched our soaps. And we went to this boot sale and I picked up uh, a big sort of, you remember those like CD wallets people used to have? and they they would keep all the discs in the wallets. It was a very 90s thing. So I picked up this big CD wallet that, luckily for me, my mom hadn't noticed had a copy of Resident Evil in because she just flicked through the first lot, and it was like, oh, Crash Bandicoot, Spyro. Yeah, yeah, you can have that. So I I picked this up for for a ridiculous, ridiculous price as well. It was so cheap. Um, But that's boot sales for you, especially back in the day. Um, And I was flicking through. And I, my mom was watching you know, I saw opera on the TV, and I got to Resident Evil and I saw that disc like the disc to me is more evocative than the box art, you know the mm. disc where it has the eye and the people as the whole yeah, like that yeah. that image in my head that was like, oh my god that 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 to me was like finding a gun in my mm. house, like just this completely taboo thing and obviously I, I immediately had to play it, but I had to play it in a room where my very disapproving mother was currently watching her TV at the other side. So I remember just kind of like turning my CRT (laughs) away and just sort of tucking myself into the corner, putting on like headphones and booting it up. And the game was terrifying to a, I guess, nine or 10-year-old or however old I was at the time anyway. But in that scenario where I knew I could be caught at any moment, just amped up the atmosphere loads. And the thing that got us... The thing that really got us in Resident Evil, it wasn't the spot that everybody else gets got by, and that's the dogs. Mm-hmm. The dogs yeah. the everybody, everybody, you know, that's always their first, oh, that was the first moment that scared us in a game. Yeah. For me, I'd done my research. I knew the dogs were coming, so I braced myself for the dogs. The bit that got us is just a little bit after that. There's a room with the statue, and you go into the back room, and there's a zombie on, the, on floor, the floor, and you have to go past it and open the chest to grab, I believe, a key. And I was so sheltered from horror, it didn't occur to me that even though I knew what zombies were, the whole gimmick of, oh, they could look dead, but they're not really dead. So I just assumed the zombie was set dressing, walked into it, and of course, it grabs you and bites your ankle. When I tell you I nearly died, <laughs> I, my <laughs> heart sunk into the pit of my stomach, and all I wanted to do was scream as loud as possible but I couldn't because then I'd get in trouble. So all I did was I pressed pause, like instantly without even thinking, pressed pause and just white knuckle grip the PlayStation controller for the next 10 minutes as I just (laughs) stayed there, unmoving, trying my very best to slow down my breathing and hoping to God that I didn't get caught playing Resident (laughs) Evil.
0: That's awesome. I've (laughs) just got images of you like, it reminded me of that episode of Simpsons where Homer has to stop swearing and he's like, Twiddle do dee That was painful. <laughs> <laughs> like, really trying to hold it in.
3: It really was. Like, I literally, like, all my internal monologue was just, ah, just for yeah. the next 10 minutes. But all anybody could see from the outside was a very, very still, very pale child. And if you had put your hand in my chest, the heartbeat would have knocked you back. Honestly, I was I love terrified.
0: That. I love that that you know what you really reminded me there and it it was a kind of a realization for me as well there was there was two types of uh you know children in the nineties there was the child whose parents would shelter them and not let them play these games and you know would and you would in your case make you become fascinated with mm-hmm. the horror of it in the films and you know just that as a whole genre and media and then there's the other kids whose parents really don't give a crap if they watch an eighteen. Or were running around playing Doom and Resident Evil and loaded for the PS1. And it's that kid who would lend the other kid those games. Yeah. In secret. yeah.
3: Oh, I got, I got so many um I got so many games that way by like sneaking into my older brother's room and yeah. stealing his when, when nobody was in or um you know, borrowing from um shout out to my secondary school friend Callum Patterson, you know, sorting us out in year seven with a good few discs he did. <laughs>
0: fantastic so uh resident evil obviously completely iconic <laughs> um any other kind of like standouts for you you know the 90s i think for me it is just like such a huge impact but any other sort of like outstanding games for you that come to mind from from that era that just terrified you and just oh stuck with you? uh
3: from from the era this like the 90s is is a decade that i actually really want to focus on in terabytes because for me mm. Um, that is the decade that changed everything when it came to yeah, horror games. You know, absolutely. it didn't just introduce Resident Evil, but it also introduced Silent Hill, which yep. is, you know, Silent Hill Two is personally I think probably the most perfect thing to ever exist. Like, I, I just <laughs> think it is like to say it would be my to say it's my favorite game would be underselling it. I literally mm. think it is just the most perfect thing ever. I think it is a, a flawless work of art. And so obviously, you know, we'll get the start of that franchise in the 90s, but then we'll also get all these hidden gems like Nightmare Creatures and Nightmare Creatures Mm -hmm. 2, which if you look Mm -hmm. back at the Nightmare Creatures 2 is really doing a lot of the things, obviously in a lot more janky PS1, lower-budget way, but a lot of the things that, you know, something like Bloodborne is doing now, it's got that really... Yeah, yeah, it's got that really sort of weighty combat and, like slow approaches to enemy encounters you know everything you have to kind of like approach with like intent and and deliberation and it's got that really sort of
0: it's got a turn-based feel to it without yeah. being turn-based and know, it's got yeah. that
3: really like gothic almost lovecraftian but not quite horror to it especially the second one um it's yeah. it's that they're really like fascinating games that i think don't get enough of the looking for being something that I think you can still feel the DNA of to this yeah. day, even mm-hmm. if it wasn't a direct line from Nightmare Creatures to to, to Bloodborne. I do think there'll be middle points uh, between those two games where something that inspired Bloodborne was, you know, somebody on that dev team was a fan of Nightmare Creatures and pulled just a little bit from that yeah um, absolutely and yeah and in terms of like games in general if we don't fixate on the 90s uh you know some of my favorite games of all time are our games i think there's a real indie revolution doing some incredible stuff right now a game i really really loved recently that nobody seems to have heard of or, or have played is uh yuppie cycle which is this uh independent game by baroque decay where you play as an office worker who shows up to this new job at this mega corporation, and it's this horror game, but it it does really interesting things with its satire within, mm. like the way it sort of uses its horror to comment on like corporate culture and stuff. Because the whole gimmick of the game is that you turn up to this office, and it's this huge, huge, huge corporation, and everybody is like working to death there, but. Nobody knows why they're there. Nobody knows what they're doing. And it's all about that kind of like office thing of like jobs that just exist just because and having to do them and not really knowing what you're supposed to be doing or what you're contributing to and that. And it, it uses that as a kind of basis for this really surreal horror where you're sort of living in the ambiguity of that existence, but also that ambiguity is lending itself to the ambiguousness of the horror itself and the atmosphere that comes with that uncertainty mm. and uh yeah and it's just got this really cool gimmick where you turn up to work and you don't know what you've been hired for and then they tell you oh you're actually the resident witch hunter and you have no idea what that means like what do, what do you mean i'm the witch hunter what, what do you mean there's a witch in the building and nobody kind of knows And it's just really interesting what it does with it And yeah, like, and, uh, uh, you know, and and if we we think of horror a lot as well, and this is something we really want to explore in Terabyte, we think of horror a lot as well when people say horror games. We think of Outlast, we think of Silent Hill, we think of Resident Mm -hmm. Evil, but it's just as important to think of, if I'm going to throw out another uh, personal favourite of mine, and go back to the 90s again, Castlevania. Castlevania Symphony of the Night is one, Mm. and again, another one of the most perfect things to ever exist, but it is firmly 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 a horror game people don't yeah. think of it as a horror game people think of it as an action game and because it's got that metroidvania label people are very quick to sort of be like oh it's a metroidvania game but yeah, it yeah. is it's within s- its aesthetic purely it's purely so based in
0: gothic horror heavily heavily inspired by the hammer horror films as well yeah absolutely you know, yeah the enemies and everything in there yeah 100 it's interesting because my next question to you was actually going to be what video game do you think had the biggest significant impact on the genre of a whole, really?
3: Well, that's um, that's a tricky question. It's a good question, but it is a tricky one. And again, not to shamelessly plug, but this is sort of something we're going to kind of explore in terabytes yeah, yeah. because people really think that horror started with Resident Evil and mm. Resident Evil was such a formative piece within the subgenre but it is by no means the beginning, not even close. This is yeah. this is a 50-year-plus history. Yeah. You know, you go back to the first survival horror game, and it's 3D Monster Maze, which is this black-and-white first-person, like, it almost looks like ASCII art, and it's, it is a survival horror in essence. It's literally just you navigate a maze while a dinosaur chases you, and surprisingly, still effective in its scares for being, you know, 50-plus yeah. years old now. Um, And so, you know, you can, you could sort of go, well, historically, I guess maybe it's 3D Monster Maze because that was the original horror game or something like Haunted House on the Atari because that was the original, like, big commercial horror game. But did they make the same impact as something like Alone in the Dark? I don't think so. I would personally think that maybe it's Alone in the Dark. I know people would Mm -hmm. be very keen to say Resident Evil. But I don't think you have Resident Evil without Alone in the Dark. I think Alone in the Dark sets the template of so many features that we now associate as being uh, integral to horror, and more specifically survival horror, which is kind of what we associate horror gaming with. So you look at Alone in the Dark and you get things like fixed camera perspectives. Mm -hmm. um, You get things like um, lack of combat ability, you know, de-empowering the player, which is something like that very much goes against the grain of video games and only really works in in the realm of horror a lot of the time. Um, You also get uh, the atmosphere, the visuals. It's sort of the first real foray into 3D there. And you get lots of things like uh, the uh, movement systems and stuff. And if you actually dig into the Resident Evil making of, um, the original Resident Evil is sort of a direct response to Alone in the Dark. Uh, Shinji Mikami, I believe it was Shinji Mikami on the team, played Alone in the Dark and was like, ah, yes, this this is what we need to do. Obviously, Mm -hmm. it was the much more commercially uh, successful, you know, platinum game that kind of really hit the sort of mainstream and became the sort of huge franchise that it is today. But I do think if I had to name... The most influential horror game, I would probably say Alone in the Dark, and mm. even then, you know, it's very debatable. Now, in terms of them um, games that may be
2: underrated, like you know, even though Alone in the Dark was a popular game, like you said, it might not get as much love as something like Resident Evil. I also remember around that time, you know, I think between Alone in the Dark and uh, and Resident Evil, a game called Clock Tower. I remember playing as well. Yeah. Clock oh, Tower is
3: fantastic. Really oh my god! To remake. It's yeah. honestly that actually. Um, um, to go back to my favorite games, Clock Tower, original Clock Tower. I cannot believe I, I forgot about that when you, you asked a mm. uh, sort of favorite horror game. That game, um, I played very late into its life cycle because obviously uh, it didn't have an official English translation mm. until, well, it technically doesn't yet. It's coming up mm. later. So that was something I discovered sort of during the, the internet age as you kind of really, yeah, as I sort of that- came into my teams and sort of discovered you know, all of this like vivid history of the Super Famicom and stuff. And I remember getting a ROM of that and playing an English translated patch and thinking it was going to be an interesting element of history, but ultimately a kind of janky, sort of goofy, fun, you know, like clearly trying to be scary, but in a way that's aged so poorly that mm. it doesn't have that same effect anymore you know like you always hear these stories about how like people were terrified of the daleks and dr who when the first came up but now be on the like, sofa yeah yeah and <laughs> yeah. it's 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 sort of like a comical thing now because they clearly have a whisk for an arm um <laughs> i expected clock tower to be that because at the time i'm playing it even even then it's you know it's over a decade old and it still even within the limitations of the super Famicom even with 16-bit graphics it is bizarrely atmospheric it is mm. it is incredible what they achieve through sound and visual in uh, in creating such an evocative I atmosphere that it can is hear still the scary. music right now
0: I can literally yes. like <laughs> yes yeah. it's,
3: it's honestly it's it's scary scarier than some of the games that came out in the genre on well now i was going to say on ps2 Mm. but like even now it is Mm. still holds up it is fantastic game and yes i cannot wait for the remake yeah, really looking
0: forward I,
2: to I that. love some of the like psychological kind of horror games as well. I mean, that that era seemed to spawn quite a few of them. There was um, I Have No Mouth and I Must Scream as well. Yes. So again, I, I mean, I don't know if you cover that in it as well, but that was
3: definitely a bit of it's a It's in my trailer, game actually. It's right. uh, yeah, yeah. It's, it's, It very briefly appears in my trailer where she's sh- shaking the head while she's on the hook. Uh, yeah, I Have No Mouth and I Must Scream. Um, really, really fantastic. And I think perhaps this is a, a, a hot take, but I actually think uh, maybe expanded and possibly even improved on the, the classic short story. Because uh, if you read the the source material, it's a it's a very, very, very short story. But the visuals and atmosphere and it, character depth they added with the video game adaptation is like really quite impressive. Um, you know, they took something that was so brutally simplistic this idea of this you know supercomputer that is just has this hate for humanity and keeps these humans alive and just tortures them for the rest of eternity you know really really dark stuff and you hear that concept and you're like how the hell do you make a a point-and-click adventure out of that Mm. and then they did and it was incredible like um another one sort of that really goes under the radar in terms of it, not as good as I Have No Mouth and i Scream, I'll admit. It's it's a bit more... It's a bit more, like, janky in the way it expects players to just kind of know things, which is very symptomatic of point-and-click adventures of the time. But H.R. Uh, Giga's point-and-click adventure, Darkseed. Uh, yes, Darkseed, dark yeah. 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 Uh, again, like, really doing some incredible, interesting stuff with visuals and atmosphere within humongous limitations... And I think that's something that's so fascinating about horror as a subgenre within gaming. What I love about the subgenre, specifically within this medium, is how it communicates all these like vivid ideas and evokes such fear, but always through a layer of abstraction. You know, when you see a horror film, you're looking at people, you're looking at real people. And yes, we have got to a level that's close to photorealism with stuff like The Last of Us. But you look at indie games still coming out today with graphics that, you know, are reminiscent of like NES quality. Or if you look at something like Faith the Unholy Trinity, that's like, you know, that's monographics. That's like, that's like two pixel games and creating such like evocative imagery out of those limitations is not just impressive but like artistically interesting like it's something that could not be achieved in another medium
0: Mm. yeah
2: we had um we had joe biotero did the uh the artwork for Dark Seed on the podcast recently, actually. No way, and, that's brilliant. Yeah, he, well, he was talking about the, how he kind of trans, translated Giga's kind of artwork into essentially 16 colours, you know, to get them to run on like, graphics cards of the day and how that translated. But I think your imagination probably worked a bit harder as well to kind of compensate for that.
3: Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I think, you know, horror is a genre within fiction and within storytelling that works best on imagination. Um, you know, it's always scarier when the monster's in the dark than when the big rubber suit is kind of jerking around in front of the camera in front of your face um you know there's that all there's that whole horror you know rule of like don't show too much of the monster and i think what's interesting with games is that you can get away with showing so much because it always has that layer of abstraction where people fill in those blanks so Mm -hmm. it's no matter how much you can kind of depict in the, in the game because of the limitations of the the hardware you're working on or the artistic limitations you set yourself you always have some room for the imagination of the player and i don't think you get that in a medium like film or television
2: mm. yeah i mean yeah. even text adventures can be scary you know it's like yes, reading a book i suppose absolutely
3: um well, i mean i played uh recently uh it's sort of like a A text adventure sort of, but kind of like a modernized twist. I played um, recently The House Abandon, which is the first episode of a game that the name escapes me now, but it's got a very, like, Stranger Things-esque aesthetic. But the whole gimmick with that is you play as somebody who goes into an attic and finds an old text adventure game, Mm. and your interface within this game is literally just that player's avatar's perspective looking at an old text adventure screen you know running ms dos and the you can see that the creator has really understood the terror that can be pulled from that intimate setting of just a room in the dark with a quiet green glow illuminating your face as just text comes up on screen because there are some absolutely thrilling segments. It's only a very, very short, short episode, but there's some really thrilling stuff in there that is uses the liberal limitation of we have a room and we have text on a screen and still manages to make some of the scariest moments I've played recently. And I just think that's fascinating.
2: I'll just found that on Steam. Eight pounds fifty. Yeah, so I'll give that a buy. Looks good.
0: There you go. Selling games. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so obviously horror huge in terms of like artistic influence across you know across the landscape of gaming and stuff like that what kind of impact do you think the horror games especially of the 80s and the 90s do you think that's had kind of like in terms of gameplay and the mechanics and just the you know the the landscape of it across gaming overall do you think it's had a big impact on it do you think it changed changed the way we play and stuff at all
3: I think hugely. I mean, I think if you look at like games like Dark Souls and Bloodborne and stuff, they are very much, you know, one foot in the horror grave. In the horror grave, especially Bloodborne. And mm-hmm. when you look at those games, they're essentially three D Metroidvania's. And yeah. Metroidvania is a genre that doesn't necessarily need to be horror, but it's yeah. interesting that it keeps going back to that. Well, isn't it? You know, yeah, yeah. A lot of um, Metroidvania's. Use the kind of Castlevania aesthetic or the horror worlds of the horror sci-fi worlds yeah. of, of the Metroid, yeah, yeah, and and yeah, yeah. we constantly revisit this well of this Metroidvania is not necessarily scary. You know, a lot of people think of horror as like it has to be scary, but that's not necessarily what horror is. Horror is dealing with like the darker scenes and the creepy scenes, and you can have something that's aesthetically horror without necessarily being scary. But we see this evolution of the the metroidvania and that genre's foundations are built wholly on sort of the hallowed ground of horror if you will and then when you look at stuff like resident evil being you know the kind of knockout um multi-million multi-billion dollar at this point franchise that it is and you trace it back to its its sort of humble beginnings of those tank controls fixed perspective camera angles When you look at what it's evolved into, you know, with stuff like Resident Evil 4, where they sort of reinvented the survival horror genre again with the sort of over-the-shoulder third-person view with all the remakes that kind of brought that back into Resident Evil 2, which originally was um, fixed-perspective cameras. You can trace the line of evolution between those points. You know what I mean? Like, Resident Evil 7, on paper... Looks nothing like Resident Evil one because one's mm. a, one is a first-person horror action game shooter. Yeah, if you can even call it a shooter because it's not really focused on shooter, but you you, you get what I'm saying. Yeah, and I get then what the, saying, the yeah. other one is like resource management, isometric viewpoints, fixed camera perspectives. Um, just just aesthetically and functionally and mechanically totally different, and yet. When Resident Evil 7 came out, a lot of people gravitated to how much it felt like it captured the original feeling of Resident Evil before it had kind of gone down this action sub-genre route with 5 and 6. And I think it's because they are still using the ingredients of what worked in those original games. You're seeing the stuff like resource management and bullet count come back. You see mm. the stalker enemy, which is such a really cool feature that generally only exists within horror games. Yeah. Um, coming back again from, you know, Resident Evil 2 and Resident Evil 3 with Nemesis and in, in Jack Baker with Resident Evil 7. And that's yeah. like a highlight of that game. But it's like, you look at these high points and you look at these evolutions and you look at the, the way horror is done now and like, even though it feels like a fresh new thing, it's like, there's that saying, you know, the more it changes, the more it stays the same. It, it, it's it's very much borrowing from the sort of secret ingredients that made it work in the first place.
0: I think uh, you're, you're spot on there. And I think I was, you know, when I think that was a really, really good answer because I'm thinking like, oh, gameplay kind of like control mechanics and stuff like that. But I never really, I enjoyed Seven. But I never really kind of like related it back to one and two and thought about too much into the kind of like like you say the stalker enemy side of it and stuff like that with Jack. Um, but that's a really really interesting point and has made me want to revisit that now because uh, I love re- I love Resident Evil Seven. It's such a great game. But I didn't yeah, enjoy and, it as much as I did Eight. Funny enough, But
3: yeah, yeah that's a fair. That's fair, fair as well. Resident Evil Eight also fantastic. Um, but yeah, but when you look at the response to Seven and Eight, like I think hmm. the the people who really gravitate towards early Resident Evil, jump to those more than do 5 and 6. Maybe not so Mm -hmm. much 4, because 4 still very much has a lot of horror in it with characters like the Regenerator. But 5 and 6 was the kind of period where the the people who gravitated towards the horror of the games sort of switched off them a bit. And then 7 comes along, and in theory, it's less like the... The f- uh, original games than five and six are because five and six is still third person, but it evokes that feeling again that it, you know in terms of the setting as well. Obviously, Resident Evil One was very much all in the mansion. Yeah, Resident Evil Seven is all based around
0: that house and, you, and, and then you go very to a cabin. Small
3: area outside of its house.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now you know when you when you really get your brain thinking like that. Number one, you're in a mansion, and then you go yeah. to a cabin, then you go to a lab. Seven. You're in a mansion, then you go to a cabin, and then you go to a a boat, which is a lab. Um, So it's really interesting when you think about those parallels and how it's still happening, you know, 20, 25 years later and still prominent, uh, which is absolutely fantastic. When you Yeah, and then if
3: we look at other sort of ways it's influenced, um, you know, we're seeing a real love and appreciation of things like tank controls kind of gain some momentum you know, tank controls were always the thing that people criticized within horror games. Um, Mm. You know, it was always like, it it became a thing. I can't remember what the game was, but I remember IGN sort of rolling their eyes at one point to be like, this game has tank controls. It became like, you know, sort of a bad stamp, like a a, 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 a cross next to your name of like on the cons list because people just, just... didn't vibe with them at all because the controlled so differently to how we traditionally move characters within games but then it's really interesting because as horror games sort of moved away from tank controls but still had those fixed perspective angles mm. you started to see oh i get why they were tank controls because what happens yeah. is you move through one room into another room the camera changes you're still holding the direction you are traveling in on your control stick and then suddenly your character just spins in place and goes back into the room <laughs> that just came from the tank controls was such a fundamental response in design to the game they were making yeah. you know what i mean like yeah. fair enough criticizing when Croc on ps1 has tank controls it's a platformer <laughs> yeah. there's no need for that to have tank controls but resident evil is inherently made with tank controls in mind. And as we've kind of realized that as times went on and we've sort of had distance and time to appreciate it, we have gone back to that again. You're seeing a lot of return, especially in the indie scene, with things like uh, Tormented Souls that are, again, sort of borrowing from the well of like the original Resident Mm -hmm. Evil games and those fixed perspective angles. Um, And a lot of them are benefiting from tank controls and people are happy to see tank controls people like it when tank controls is an option within horror games when you know before it was the it was the black mark and i think that's so interesting because it kind of draws parallels to when the analog stick first came out and everybody was like what the hell is this this is a mess you know and then mario 64 came along and everybody was like oh actually you know this is pretty wild this is pretty insane but people (laughs) really didn't like the analog stick at first and it's it's kind of within the same sort of headspace i think where Mm. an audience sort of rejects an idea that in many ways is ahead of its time because they don't understand why it's like that but then as time goes on it becomes such a key part of what it was made for that we become nostalgic for it and through that nostalgia we understand its importance
2: yeah, and I think you even have to look at you know indie games like, you know, back in 1995 that were covered on this podcast, you know, the, the Resident Evil HD remasters and, you know, games like Babysitter Bloodbath will be another yeah. one I think we talked about oh, as well. But that kind of aesthetic, that PS1 kind of style and the tank controls. I think you're right. It's kind of at that age now where the nostalgia is kicking in.
3: Yes, and, and it's not just nostalgia as well. I think yeah. it's important to note that. I think when you look at games like, game developers like Puppet Combo, who is making stuff yeah. like uh, sl- um, Babysitter Bloodbath and and, and stuff Murder like House. that, and they're yeah. using Mur- Murder House and that they're using these kind of PS1 aesthetics. It's one part nostalgia. You know, it's it's a very cool aesthetic to, to mimic nowadays because, you know, it's kind of had that 30-year life cycle where it's retro now. Yeah. Um, And, you know, you kind of see that a lot with things like indie projects like the Haunted PS1 disc, which is like all a collection of horror demos that are in the style of a demo disc for PS1 and they've all got those sort of PS1 graphics. But it's also, I think more importantly, a genuine aesthetic choice to evoke the horror they're intending. And it goes back to that abstraction. I do not think any of Puppet Combo's games... Are as scary if they have these wonderful photorealistic, you know, Metal Gear Solid Three remake aesthetics, because it removes something from from them. In the same way that like seventies films don't look right without the film grain. Like, yeah. There's, yeah, yeah. there's an there's an earthiness and a, a natural texture to low poly graphics that really create these perfect um, abstractions within your head that allow for a player's imagination to flourish and really, really bring out the scares in it. Um, it's sort of like, to, to draw a weird parallel, there's this there's this analog horror film came out that's incredibly divisive recently called uh, Skinner-Marink. And, okay. and it's, it's very, very divisive, and I totally understand why, because it is essentially two hours of empty rooms like that's that's the horror of it but it's very grainy footage and you're not quite sure what you're looking at and one of the ways it achieves its horror is you're sort of like leaning into the screen being like do i do i see your face there in the in the grain and you're not quite sure because it's always it's never a clear picture and the ps1 aesthetic does that for games you know shadows don't quite look right so you don't know if shadows are moving and just, just things always have this kind of dingier look to them because they're not as posh, they're not as clean, and, and, and it creates a, a texture and an atmosphere that isn't achievable without those graphics. And you see time and time again that that is definitely a factor because the Zindia developed as not um, building in PS1 graphics they are choosing to go even you know older with their aesthetics mm. and evoke the Super Famicom or the, um, you know, even NES style graphics or even, you know, like as far back as like Atari and Commodore 64 aesthetics. And they're finding the horror in those aesthetics. So it is both nostalgia, but it's also like in service of the, the greater goal of what they're trying to achieve. You know, going back to kind of that
2: era, that that kind of pre-playstation era. I mean, obviously the arcades were huge then and obviously arcades contribute to the the horror genre as well. I mean, even games like, you know, Ghosts and Goblins and Ghouls and Ghosts and Yeah, uh, and House of the Dead is
3: one of the fire titles. And again, you know, if we're speaking of horror games influence, um the influence of horror games is so massive it isn't limited to games. George Romero fully credited House of the Dead and Resident Evil as being the reason he was able to make zombie movies so late into his life because it created a zombie renaissance and it made this big fascination. You look at things like, you know, the big, the, the almost strange overpowering zombie boom of the 2000s where everything was zombies. Uh, in, you know, in TV, you had Walking Dead. In movies, you had World War Z. In games, you had Left for Dead. It was just Dead Rising and Left for Dead 2 and it was just dead, 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 dead everywhere. That traces back to Resident Evil and House mm. of the Dead. You mm. know, they took what Romero originally made with Night of the Living Dead, they took that zombie myth, they put it into a new medium and they gave it a second wind that blossomed and blossomed and blossomed and came to like this tremendous crescendo in the sort of mid, mid to late 2000s.
0: I was just thinking it's a shame they couldn't make good films out of <laughs> <franchises>. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
3: Yes, oh my goodness. They, they were, there were some terrible films, but it is interesting that the films exist. That's, yeah, that's yeah. something, you know, yeah. like... To to come to the right to the modern era, you look at something like Five Nights at Freddy's, and mm. that making like I think it's at like a hundred and seventy eight million or something on its opening yeah. weekend. It made like over a hundred million on its opening weekend. Opening weekend against a twenty million budget, and that is an indie horror game. You know, made only nine years ago with mm. like really like simplistic gameplay, and the fact that that can blossom into a bigger opening weekend than the super mario movie when it also released in cinemas and on streaming at the same time so people could have seen it for free and chose Mm -hmm. to go to the cinemas to see it it shows that horror especially as a subgenre within games is really really resonating in a really like key uh way with people that Maybe other games aren't. You know, obviously yeah. we all love Zelda and Mario and they have like massive fandoms and we would never can never deny, you know, the the impact of something even like Call of Duty or FIFA. But there is something about horror specifically that just really drives people mad. And yeah. you can, you know, you can blow up and just absolutely capture the imagination of the whole world with What's essentially a, a very lo fi, almost walking sim level of interactivity with something like Iron Lump, which, is, if for those of you who aren't familiar, is an indie game where you only have the confines of a small submarine to work with and you just have to take pictures of the bottom of the ocean. But it's very horror. And yeah, and, and you know that's getting a theatrical release and stuff. And it's, it's, those are the types of games that, really fascinated me because you couldn't get them in any other genre you yeah. know what i mean you can only get these very specific games within this genre i think if, if you'll allow us to go on like a little bit more of a tangent here i think yeah. what's so incredible about the horror genre is how much it fits as a key piece within the gaming medium but equally it is so oppositional to everything else around it. Mm. So traditionally with video games, we always think of the them as being a bit of a power fantasy. You know, yeah. when you're Kratos, you are literally a god tearing mm. other gods into. When you're Master Chief, you are the universe's greatest soldier. When you are in playing Call of Duty, you know, you're the you're the biggest action hero soldier that's ever existed in the US. Um, and even if you go to something like Mario or Zelda, it is, you know, you are the, the warrior that slays Ganondorf yeah. at the end of the game. or You're you are the this, hero. Yeah. yeah, you are this breezy, jump-along, athletic gymnast. It's, it's exciting, it's airy, it's dreamlike. And then horror is the only genre that comes around and goes, okay, but what if you were just a weird little dude? What if you were just <laughs> like a lonely little man who's very sad? with a crowbar yeah (laughs) like i've played horror games where i am literally a lost little girl in yomawari i've played horror games where i'm a prisoner at the bottom of the ocean long. there's a new horror game that's came out recently called cold abyss where you play as a man whose job it is to repair internet cables at the bottom of the ocean what (laughs) other genre is putting you in those roles what other (laughs) genre is literally de-empowering the player Putting you in the, you know, the average it's, Joe yeah. shoes and saying, yeah, this is what we're going to explore. It's,
0: it's that de-empowering, as you say, and it's, it's funny because growing up, playing all these horror games on, you know, PS1, PS2, my best friend uh, through school adored horror as a genre, but he couldn't play these games. He had to watch me play them because it was terrifying for him yeah. to be in that position. And, you know, I, I, I felt that so strange, but it was funny because the other way around, for me is i found films scarier than mm. the games maybe not necessarily scarier but you know they would they would scare me more kind of thing and i I could get on with playing a game and it's it's really interesting that but um before we wrap let's talk a little bit more about terabytes and just you know what we can kind of expect from that because this has been an absolute love story to horror as a genre not just for video games for me but you know for films as well talking to you about this dan but what what can we expect with terabytes? What what's the kind of inspiration behind the documentary? And uh just tell us what you can tell about tell us about it at the moment, really.
3: Well, I think I think if it's not clear already, um it's an absolute product of passion for it. You know, it is something that myself as producer deeply, deeply, deeply cares about. Um, you know, we've got Richard Moss attached as writer. He's mm-hmm. uh, been on your podcast before on uh, episode yep. 303. Uh, yeah. For those of you who don't know him, he's a really accomplished games writer. He's a writer of multiple books. He wrote The Secret History of Mac Gaming and Shareware Heroes. And he actually wrote and produced our other game and documentary, doc. So, you yep. know, he's very, very keen and well-researched on all topics relating to games. And, um, yeah, and horror has always kind of been the lifeblood of Create a VC, you know, In Search of Darkness is, is the flagship franchise. Um, and to sort of bring this into the game world, what we really want to do is just paint this complete portrait of, of a genre that I think often goes um, misunderstood um, in, in a lot of different ways. Um, you know, it can be through misconceptions, e.g., e- Resident Evil started horror. And it's like, well, that's Mm. just not true. Important, absolutely. But there's decades of history before that. Let's unearth that. Let's bring that into the spotlight, show people it, show people why it's important, why it matters, and see its evolution and how it acted as the foundations and the blueprints from which all of this stuff we love evolved. Um, People think, you know, it's all blood and guts and violence. And it's like, well, actually, no, there's like real personal stories and narrative catharsis can be found in a lot of these games it's not just about being scared and seeing some blood people think that it's you know um only resident evil and silent hill and it's like they are incredibly incredibly important games and we will absolutely be exploring those key titles Mm -hmm. but equally you know we we want to talk about everything we want to talk about this in such a huge scope one of the most important horror games of all time is something that most people probably have never heard of. And that is a sound novel, a Japanese sound novel called Otogi Riso, which is a, for those of you who don't know, it kickstarted uh, the sound novel genre, which is basically like a visual novel with even less graphical um, on screen elements. Mm. Um, and it did so much for games in that it introduced a lot of um, female players into a male-dominated environment at the time. It introduced a lot of, like, older players because, you know, people who were older maybe couldn't play Mario, but they could read a novel, and that's what this was, and it created so much tension and atmosphere that it was also, and people don't, this is the part that's really key to the horror history that a lot of people don't know, it was a direct influence... On Silent Hill. Oh, and it's man. just faded into obscurity because it is a Japanese only sound novel, you know? And we want to talk about everything from the heavy, heaviest of heavy hitters to the really niche stuff and the obscure stuff that's maybe doing something really interesting or playing with the format in a compelling way. And then we want to talk about the vivid history that people have forgotten about. And I think it's so important, especially in this day and age, to have these discussions as we grow into a more digital focused environment, because we are already losing games and um, knowledge of these games to time. Mm. Yeah, yeah. And as that becomes digital, that that's just going to increase, you know, um the eShop for um three D S closed recently. Yep. and now there's no legal way to buy like hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of yeah. games that were on that service. We- and yeah, things like a Toby Reso again lost down, things like um, you know, there's there's there was horror games on the three DS that have just kind of disappeared into thin air. And we basically want to craft what would be to the viewer this vivid personal museum that will take them through this rich, vivid history not just in a kind of pointed tour you know people aren't just on the bus at London and being like if you look to your left you'll see Big Ben this is mm-hmm. going to be a curated just structured guide through this incredibly diverse medium and sub- subgenre within this medium and explored through the eyes of the developers, the composers, the writers, the voice actors, the the fans. Um, We're going to look at its impact on pop culture. We're going to look at how films informed horror games and then how horror games informed films in return and how it creates this uraburos of creativity where the snake's just eating its own tail and constantly evolving on itself. Mm. And we're just kind of going to pull this whole thing together in this really precise package that's going to explore every facet. You know, we could, in theory, just do five hours on survival horror alone because there's enough content there. But we don't just want to cover survival horror. We want to talk about the things that people have forgotten about and really spotlight them and show why they're important. So we're talking things like the '90s FMV craze, where there was games like Harvest hour were coming out and causing loads of controversy because they used real life actors. And Night Trap, we're going to talk about the controversies as well. You know. Horror has never been a genre that's been shy of controversies and there's lots of that within the video game space. Um, And yeah, and we want to cultivate this, this, this huge, huge, just monumental documentary that somebody who loves horror games will get a lot out of, but equally somebody who knows nothing about them will thoroughly enjoy and understand why these games are important and come out the end knowing a hell of a lot about them and that that's kind of what go and we 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 know that there's there's a, a a real desire for this you know there's lots of um there's lots of really great youtubers out there now doing like deep dive video essays into all these individual games and and they're doing you know what they're doing is great and like they're really archiving the same stuff we want to but with them and you know no disrespect to youtube as i am on myself um You know, they tend to be a lot, obviously, lower budget. It tends to be like one or two people working on these projects and they are doing it on a very specific scope or a very specific section of a game or just a one franchise. And then we kind of want to take those ideas and concepts and just blow it up into a skill that's never been seen before with, you know, touching base with like the people who made it. And made this whole sort of horror revolution happen because it is a revolution like this is what, what's really really exciting about horror games is yes it has a 50 plus year history but a lot of the early bits of that history have these these significant gaps in and so what we're finding with horror games is we're in we're entering a golden age right now and it's really blowing up and this is its infancy stage. This is, this is just the part where you need to start documenting these things so that you've got this specific artifact you can point to and go, ah, that's where this, this all began. And yeah, that, that, that's the goal. And, and everybody we sort of spoke to about it so far, you know, we're talking to a lot of people. I can't name names, but people are excited about this. People are excited to be involved. Um, we've talked to developers, we've talked to YouTubers, we've talked to filmmakers, we've talked to, you know, people within the horror space, academics, journalists, and everybody's really, really excited for it. Um, I mean, it was actually some of that excitement that got me onto the podcast today. I reached out to um, a filmmaker friend, Ninian Doth, who made uh, Get Duked, um, which is a film you can watch now on Amazon Prime. Recently got parodied Recently got parodied by The Simpsons, as it happens. And oh, wow. <laughs> uh, Yeah, he, he was, you know, thrilled and without me even trying to, you know, reach out to you guys, he passed it on to somebody who passed it on to somebody who passed yeah. it on to somebody who passed it your <laughs> way. And it's that that buzz is something we're really excited about because it's like, oh, okay, people want this and they need this. And we think and we hope because we think horror games are important that this guide and you know curated museum to them is hopefully going to be very important too
2: well dan it sounds incredible i'm sure everyone listening is you know chomping at the bit to uh, to watch this movie and obviously Still in production at the moment. You kind of touched on there, you know, people that you were talking to. Is it kind of any famous names are going to be interviewed? Because I know previously there have uh, been some very high-profile guests in in the documentaries from um, BC. And also, how far along is it? When, when can we expect a release date?
3: So, um, we'll be looking at pre-sale early next year. I can't give any exact dates yet, but we'll be looking yeah. around February. Production, I wouldn't want to give exact dates out, but we'll expect to be, you know, kind of in production of this for between one to two years. But um, well, yeah, that, that that would be what window where you want to be looking out for it would be sort of early next year as we kind of bring up the pre-sale campaign. Um, and you can follow us on that with, uh, if you go to com, we are in the projects panel that we have on the website. Or if you want to go straight there, you can go to com slash terabytes. Uh, what's really helpful actually is on there, there is a survey we have been reading every single response we've got. So all it is, is it's a survey that sort of asks you, you know, who do you follow in the horror game communities? Who would you like to see? What aspects of horror in gaming interest you? It's a really short survey, but everybody who's doing it is genuinely having a direct effect on the on the doc. I would, I would really encourage all of your listeners to fill out that survey. It's incredibly helpful to us because we will do all of the research we can in the world. Mm. But, you know, we are one team. And to be able to reach out to the massive fandom that is the horror gaming fandom, who are going to have all sorts of obscure knowledge that some, like, we couldn't even underco- uncover through research, to hear from those. And also, you know, even if you don't have that obscure knowledge, if, if you just really want to know about Resident Evil and Science Hill, let us know. That's super helpful to us, and you will have a direct effect on the documentary. And you could, in fact, inform this what we we hope will be this this significant uh, part of of horror game in history. Um, and yeah, so the dates to look out for are sort of February, early next year. Um, uh, not an exact date yet, but that's that's kind of the the month to watch. Sort of Janu- mm. late January, early February. And if you want to stay up to date. With everything that's developing, you can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. On all of those, we are just Terabytes Dock. And if you fill in the survey, we'll keep you up to date on when it all goes out and what's happening, and you'll see new trailers as they, as they come out, because that's not going to be the only trailer. Lots of cool stuff still to come. And uh, yeah, you can get in at Ground Zero and you know grab yourself a bunch of merch when it all ha- happens, and that'll be really, really cool. In terms of big names that are in it, like I say, I can't name names exactly yet. But for those of you who aren't familiar with our previous work, uh, we did In Search of Darkness and that featured people like um, John Carpenter who created Halloween and The Sing. Um, We did FPS doc with people like John Romero and John Carmack Mm. who created Doom. So without saying exactly who's in you can kind of get a sense of our scope and our scale and the kind of people we contact from our previous documentaries. But other than that, I have to remain tight lipped on I mean, it, I'm afraid.
2: No, fair enough. Uh, I'm sure, you know, like I like said, based on your track record. Um, it'll be uh, some some big names from the industry, and it'll be in you know, a real love letter to the genre. So, Dan, we wish you all the best with it. Obviously, I will. Uh, I'll link it up in our show notes as well. People should go and check out the teaser, fill in that survey, you know, if you're fan of horror gaming, let the guys know what you want to see in there. And uh, we can't wait to see it. Thank you so much for coming on and uh, reminiscing with us as well, Dan. It's been great to talk to you.
3: It's been an absolute pleasure. I could do this all day. I just love geeking out about horror games.